we are selling to willing buyers at the current fair market price so that we may survive. Summer winds are blowing in and stocks are kind of rising. Is it just July being July? Not so surprising about a bear market bounce after we got trounced. We're three feet high and sizing up this rally. Tally up the gains. See where strength remains. Maintain our mainframe. Staying in the membrane. Understand. Explain. The cycle's not the same. The track's been rearranged. We gotta change our perspective. Be more selective about where to allocate. How to navigate these unridden rails. What if the Fed fails to land this bubble softly, putting clouds in our coffee? We can't be so vain. No time to complain. It's time to get smart. Stay sharp. Set up for success. Lean into the wind. You're on the Investopedia Express. The month of July started strong for U.S. stocks as investors are fishing for a bottom. The three major market indices finished higher for the week with the Nasdaq jumping 4.6%, the S&P 500 higher by 1.9%, and the Dow Jones average up by 0.8%. The selling pressures of the spring eased for the moment, but the record in the rearview mirror is ugly. We already know it was the worst six-month start to a year since 1938, but the intraday violence of the market was kind of intense. The S&P 500 experienced 15 days with more than a 2% intraday loss over the past 50 sessions, according to Sentiment Trader. That's the heaviest amount of selling since 1962. The good news is that previous instances of this kind of selling occurred near the troughs of major declines, and the bounce out of them has been robust, with an average one-year forward return of more than 21.5%. Does that mean that the selling is over and will pop 20% or more from here? Absolutely not, but it's important to know these historical trends. That said, 2020 is a different beast. In the last few bear markets, the U.S. economy was in a tailspin, whether it was the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9 or the bear market bonfire at the outset of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, the Federal Reserve responded by dropping interest rates to the floor and buying treasuries. Now the Fed is raising interest rates to battle inflation and reducing its balance sheet by selling treasuries, and it's trying to do all of this without driving the economy into a recession. Whether we'll get a recession or whether we're already in one, it won't be like the others. The U.S. labor market is pretty strong, and there are a lot of job openings out there. 372,000 jobs were added in June, and the unemployment rate held steady at a pretty healthy 3.6%, giving the Fed no reason to deviate from its plan for aggressive rate hikes. While recession fears may have cooled momentarily, the Atlanta Federal Reserve's GDP Now tracker shows an expected second quarter decline of 1.9%. Believe it or not, that was a slight improvement from the July 1st reading, which pointed to a 2.1% drop. Falling oil and gas prices likely had a lot to do with that. In fact, the whole commodity complex keeps tumbling, led by copper, as we discussed last week. And inflation expectations keep coming down. Inflation expectations, as expressed through the five-year break-even rate, fell to 2.5% last week, well off the 3.5% projections back in March. Remember what Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley told us last week. We could be headed into a period of deflation like the 1940s, falling prices and slowing growth. The big sell-off in commodities is most likely being triggered by investors' expectations for a recession, which could crush demand and prices right along with it. We can start to see signs of that in earnings expectations. This week will kick off second quarter earnings reports, and expectations for those results have been coming down in recent weeks. A recent report from Citi shows that global earnings downgrades are now outnumbering upgrades at an increasing pace. Here in the U.S., Earnings among companies in the S&P 500 are projected to have risen 4.3% in the second quarter from last year, according to FactSet. That would mark the slowest pace of growth since the fourth quarter of 2020. For the year, profits are expected to rise 10%. 
While analysts have lowered their near-term estimates in recent months, those projections may still be too rosy. Expectations for the second quarter have fallen by a smaller margin than the historic average, while forecasts for the year have actually increased. Analysts' expectations for net profit margins for the S&P 500 in the second quarter are 12.4%. That's above the five-year average and even higher than it was in the first quarter. A lot of that profit growth is likely coming from energy companies, particularly oil companies, which have been bathing in crude oil prices above $100 a barrel for most of this year. Remember, any price above 50 bucks a barrel is pure gravy for oil companies, so profits and margins have been really strong. But if oil prices continue to tumble amid a global economic slowdown, Profits are going to dry up very quickly. Meanwhile, the dollar continues to flex its greenback muscles, with the dollar index hitting highs we haven't seen in 20 years. With the bond market in turmoil and gold hitting its lowest level all year, the dollar has been the only safe haven asset for investors to grab onto as they brace for a hard landing. Still, investors got a little frisky last week for the first time in a long time. Tech stocks popped again, and even crypto got a little love as Bitcoin broke back above $21,000. Some may feel that the selling is overdone and the worst news has been priced into risk assets. We'll see who's swimming without a Speedo if the tide rolls back out once those earnings cross the wires. Let's get set up for the week ahead. As we said, second quarter earnings season is starting up and big U.S. banks and airlines are on the runway. Earnings expectations have been coming down and more than a few companies, especially retailers, have been lowering their own guidance as they deal with too much inventory and weakening demand. As for banks, these rising interest rates should pad their net interest margins, the money they make from borrowing low and lending higher, and they are. But a slowdown in trading, investment banking, and borrowing is dragging down their revenue, and investors don't like the looks of that. The financial select sector ETF, ticker XLF, is down about 18% year-to-date, right on track with the broader market. Recessionary clouds are not favorable for financial stocks, but signs of a soft landing could clear the skies. We'll get fresh readings on inflation this week here in the U.S. when the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases the latest update to the Consumer Price Index for June. Will CPI continue to burn at a 40-year high of 8.6%? The core inflation rate, which excludes those volatile food and energy prices, is expected to have cooled to a 5.7% annual rate in June compared to 6% back in May. Core inflation peaked in March at 6.5%. We think we'll see this week. On Thursday, we'll get the June Producer Price Index. The PPI is projected to have risen 10.8% year-over-year at the same pace it did in May, but below the recent peak of 11.5% recorded in March. PPI inflation is currently running near a 41-year high. We may have peaked, folks. That doesn't mean we're coming right back down the hill. On Friday, the U.S. Census Bureau will release the retail sales reports for June, and economists are forecasting a slight increase as consumers stare down inflation and threw down their credit cards for a little summer spending. Amazon is hoping that revenge spending continues. It's holding its two-day prime event this week, hoping that two days of deals will bring out bargain shoppers. Target is one-upping Amazon, hosting a three-day deals event, while Macy's and Best Buy and a lot of other retailers are offering steep markdowns on excess inventory. Retailers have been snapped by the bullwhip effect, strapped with too much inventory and not enough demand for items that were hot in 2021. To wit, the consumer discretionary sector has been the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 this year, down 29% year to date. 
I don't know about you, but I've heard enough about recessions, bear markets, sour investor sentiment, and sell-offs for a while. We can't avoid the realities around us as investors, but I think we've beaten the drum on that enough for a bit, and we deserve a little fun, don't you think? We're going to mix it up this week and have some fun with some new categories, lists, and awards for the Express that we're going to affectionately call the Expressos. And I brought an old but new friend onto the show. Sam Rowe is joining us this week, and like me, he's a financial markets junkie and a veteran in the business news trenches. He's the former managing editor of Yahoo Finance, a former deputy managing editor of Business Insider, and now he's penning his terrific substack called Ticker, TK apostrophe ER. If you love market commentary and insights with a modern spin, check out Ticker. I love it. And I am delighted to welcome Sam aboard the Express this week. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me, Kevin. So you got your terrific substack. I, I am an avid reader of it. What are your readers into right now? Like us, you get a lot of response from them. You know what they're reading. You know what articles they're most into. What is top of mind for your readers on the substack? So a lot of my readers are mostly investors who sort of have this sort of long-term time horizon. So to answer your question, what they're all interested in is reasons to not sell. There are a lot of investors out there who do have you know, a little bit of experience with bear markets and recessions and, and whatnot. But whenever you are in a bear market, whenever stocks are down you know, 20, 30, 40% from from their high, you know. Sometimes it, it's nice to have uh, someone hold your hand a little bit. So yeah, it's it's reasons to not sell. And the way to sort of answer that question is to look back at the history and talk about past recessions and past geopolitical risk events that might have rocked the financial markets. Talk about past instances of inflation spiking and energy crises and all these things that might have happened in the past and remind people that for whatever reason, the economy and the financial markets comes out stronger. So when you do see prices fall, if anything, it's probably more attractive to be buying than selling. So selling is probably not the move. Yeah, I know. We're getting a lot of the same questions. And the best thing we can do is provide that context, that educational context, that historical context. What happens in past recessions? What's the average drawdown? What's the time to recovery? One of the biggest days, the biggest updates in the stock market, as you know, half of those come in the middle of bear markets, which is why we remind people to stay in the game. So you got a lot of self-directed individual investors. We have a lot of self-directed individual investors. Not so surprisingly, that we got some crossover there. All right, let's get in to some categories right now. Let's talk about some of the biggest surprises for the first half of 2022. What do you think were some of the biggest surprises or the biggest surprise we saw in the first six months of the year? Well, you know, we can talk all we want about, you know, stock prices falling or whatever. And, you know, plenty of people will tell you that that wasn't a surprise. But I think the biggest surprise is how the outlook for earnings continues to be very strong. So coming into 2022, before all the terrible stuff that we know about, before we heard about you know, this inflation spike, before the war breaks out in Ukraine, and before the Fed gets excessively, well, not excessively, but gets very hawkish with, with monetary policy, you know, we had expectations for a certain level of earnings per share growth for the S&P 500, for instance. And as all these negative externalities and, you know, scary bearish forces, you know, emerged, expectations for foreign earnings only continued to increase. There were periods where analysts were cutting their estimates for Q1 earnings and Q2 earnings, and, you know, we're about to go into Q2 earnings season. But companies, as much as they, they, they are also struggling with all these problems, they, they've managed to beat expectations when it comes to earnings. And so, you know, we have a setup right now where analysts continue to expect 2022 and 2023 earnings to be 
very robust. Yeah, we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks as we get those second quarter reports. And it's not a surprise. You and I have watched this game for many, many years. You guide lower and then you produce to the upside. Your stock usually gets a nice jolt when that happens. But as we know, Sam, words matter. So the words that companies use going forward now, how many times are they going to mention the word recession? How many times are they going to mention mention pressure on profit margins? The words they use probably matter more than the results because companies do find a way to make those numbers look good or better than they were supposed to look. For me, that biggest surprise was where did the apes go? We had such an aggressive retail investor trader really joining the stock market in 2020 when there was nothing else to do and there was money in folks' hands. So passionate about companies, including GameStop and AMC and, and even BlackBerry, you name it. Where did they go all of a sudden? The trading activity has been so muted, and you see it in the results of some of the online brokers. Obviously, you see it in the crypto brokers. A lot of these folks are struggling now for business because they can't compare to what was happening a year or two years ago. That's my biggest surprise. Let's talk about questionable corporate moves in the first half of the year. There have been a few of them, but a few stick out to me. Give me, your, in your mind, what's the most questionable corporate move you saw from your seat in the first half of the year? Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and uh, yeah, there, there's <laughs> there's there's definitely been a couple of ones that uh, uh, have have drawn a lot of headlines, but I think to answer your question another way, you can also make the case that there haven't been a whole lot of questionable corporate moves. That's sort of the the unintended consequence of tightening financial conditions and interest rates going up and stock prices coming down and all this stuff. And suddenly, you know, the people making these moves and making these decisions don't have the financial flexibility to take you know these insane risks. That said, I, you know, I don't know if this falls into the, the category, but the thing that continues to sort of blow my mind is Elon Musk and his bid for Twitter and how he's been handling it and how that continues to unfold. I mean, it's just, it's just like you know, the richest person on the planet. Sure, that's great. Lots of financial capacity to do pretty insane things. But like, you know, everything about his pursuit and everything that's happened since then with this transaction has just completely been completely mind-boggling. And, and I think people agree that uh, he's realized that, you know, he might have bitten off more than he could chew. Right. And if you ever need someone to, to make a questionable move, you can always count on Elon Musk, always full of surprises. And I thought so as well. That deal yet to close. The price, a lot different than it was when he first made the bid, and it's bounced around a lot from there. So great call on Elon. For me, it was AMC buying that gold mine in Nevada. All of a sudden, AMC was trying to make it as a movie theater business. People are going back to the movies. What do they do with all this cash that they've been able to raise through that aggressive share price and some of the splits? What they do, they bought a gold mine in Nevada because that seems to be the right play for a movie theater company. That blew my mind, but that company is full of surprises. All right, let's go to this one. You knew the bubble was about to pop when this happened, dot, 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 fill in the blanks. For you, what was it? And what did you see in the last six months uh, that made you say, uh, that's got to be the top? All right, I'm going to be I'm going to be really selfish here. It's when I launched my newsletter in October of 2021. <laughs> so, so for most of my career in media, it goes back for about 15 years. Covering financial markets, especially covering the stock markets, you know, we know that the trend is, is, is up. Earnings tend to grow over time. And like we said at the, the, the top of this conversation, the stock market and the economy always manages to emerge. And so... With the constant bombardment of scary negative headlines, even in bull markets and economic expansions that you get, you know, in the news, I often got a lot of feedback as to, well, gosh, you know, I'm hearing all this terrible stuff, but like I'm looking at Yahoo Finance or whatever, and I see that the S&P 500 and my 401k plan is doing really well. 
So how do I sort of make sense of this? And so to address that sort of discrepancy in terms of how news and information is communicated, I started this newsletter to sort of put the good news and bad news into the context of this long-term trend of the stock market usually going up. And then, of course, I do this for about two months, and then that's the top of the market. And for the last uh, six or seven months, the stock market has only been going down. So <laughs> I can tell you that uh, one of my, my favorite indicator of top-ticking the market that might have been a little bit frothy was when I leave a very secure, safe job with health insurance benefits and all that good stuff to launch a, a newsletter about stocks usually going up, starting from zero. Yeah, well, we're glad you did it. I know the timing may have been circumspect, but your newsletter is invaluable. We need it in bull markets. We need it in bear markets. We need it in flat markets. So fortune favors the brave. And I think maybe that also sort of uh, accompanies this whole big surprise of the first half question is, uh, you know, not to boast or anything, but my subscri subscription numbers have continued to go up month after month, week after week. It's, it's, it's been a very steady increase and cancellation rates have been very low. So it might actually be the case that a newsletter like this is is needed more than ever during, during market downturns. Yeah. And Quality's quality, real knows real, and as they say, fortune favors the brave, which brings me to my biggest moment when I knew the bubble popped or we jumped the shark or pick your metaphor. That was the Matt Damon Super Bowl commercial for Crypto.com. As soon as that happened, Bitcoin prices fell literally out of the sky and have continued to tumble since then. So when you get Matt Damon, Jason Bourne, whatever you want to call him, fronting a commercial for cryptocurrency, usually that's a good sign that it was the top. And indeed, it was the top for cryptocurrencies right around the Super Bowl. That same Super Bowl, they brought back the E-Trade baby. <laughs> and, and you knew that was problems for, for the stock market. When you bring back the E-Trade baby, which we haven't seen since you know 2000, and, and we know how that story ended. Yeah, absolutely. And I was happy to see the E-Trade baby. Some of the other commercials around the Super Bowl, maybe a little bit more questionable, but you got to love the, the floating QR code. Very much a back to the future or a revert to history, but it did not play out well, especially for stocks and especially for cryptocurrency. All right. Best trade of the year. Not necessarily one you made, but one that you know investors have made that turned out to be the right call. What did you notice? I got to say the, the one that really jumps out, the clear winner here has to be oil. Now we know oil prices have come down from their peaks and who knows where they're going to be going in the near term future. But a lot of the sort of fundamental arguments that oil analysts and oil sector analysts were, were making about oil prices were all very compelling and it was very difficult to argue with stuff like that. This transition into alternative fuels and alternative energy is very, very long term, long term matter. So, you know, people are going to need oil for a, a long time. The demand for oil continues to go up if the economy is growing and, you know, if we know anything from history, not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy continues to grow. Standards of living increase in emerging markets and, you know, the demand for energy will always just keep trending higher. And then, you know, speaking of, you know, this whole alternative energy shift, you know, drillers are also facing a lot of headwinds when it comes to things like companies and their customers shifting too green. It might be a slow process, but you know they see what's going on on the horizon, and, and maybe they don't want to expand production as much as as they want. So you have this sort of really great fundamental argument where the desire to expand supply is is, is not there, whereas demand from a fundamental economic perspective, you know, is very strong in the long term. Story is very strong. Well, I'm going to go along with you. I think the best trade of the year, although I didn't make it, long oil, short cannabis. 
cannabis now legal in most states. You think, uh, you know, some of these dispensaries and some of these publicly traded cannabis firms would finally wake up after a few years of being in a, in a smokable coma there. But that's not the case at all. What we're seeing is a lot of price compression in the cannabis market. And a lot of these companies that went public without profit, without any sales are being flushed right now. And we're going to see a ton of consolidation there. That industry is going to look a lot smaller. But if you went long crude oil and short on cannabis, you did pretty well in 2022 so far. All right. Let's talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. We love talking about those on the show. And there have been some crazy use cases for NFTs, not just this year, but really since they've been around. Let's talk about the best and worst use of an NFT. Give me yours uh, and I'll give you mine. Okay. Um, I'm my, my answer is, is probably going to be a little bit generic here, but I'll, I'll start with the worst use case for an NFT. The worst use case for an NFT is art. If you are buying it because... It looks nice, so you could be the only person owning this image with no additional added benefits that that you know comes with a lot of these other NFTs. Um, I think that is the absolute worst worst use case. And you know, sure, there are artists selling and making tons of money on this, and you know, value of a lot of that stuff has been going down. But NFTs that don't have any other sort of tangible value except for this intangible idea of like people will will value it because it's the only one that exists. I think that's awful. And I think it's it's something that is very dangerous to dabble in unless you have money to burn. And so the other side of it is, you know, what, what is the best use case of it? Well, you know, if you can use an NFT to get into exclusive events for, for people you admire or, or a group of people that you admire, I think that's really cool. I mean, it, it sounds a whole lot like, you know, owning season tickets to the Nets or whoever you're favorite sports team is. And in that sense, you know, you don't hear too much about, you know, those kinds of comparisons where it's like having a membership card into a club or having season tickets or whatever. But I I think that really is like the kind of interesting value because, you know, you have that sort of added layer of it being basically impossible to replicate or forge or, or whatever. And so people who do have these tickets or membership clubs and all this stuff, you know, of course, you know, one of the risks is the wrong people coming in here. But I do think that there's something there, there when it comes to NFTs that like you can use to access things that are exclusive to a a, a group of people. Great point. And I completely agree with you there. The NFT as a tradable asset, like a stock or even a crypto, that never made a lot of sense to me. But what does make a lot of sense is the joining of a community. And folks, uh, listeners will remember our conversation with Gary Vaynerchuk. You buy an NFT, you get a doodle from him, you get an invitation to an event, you get private audience with him, you get a private call with him. It gives you access to a club. That goes up in value as more and more people join it. That makes sense. But to trade it like it's a stock or a tradable asset never made sense to me. But there have been some bad ones out there. The Lindsay Lohan Herbie NFT from her starring role in Herbie. That's a terrible idea. Corvette's new NFT. They just came out with a new NFT. You get the car and you get the NFT. I just want the car. I really don't need an NFT for my Corvette. And then Jack Dorsey's first tweet, important and valuable for Jack Dorsey, not so valuable for the rest of the world, though it did sell for a good chunk of money. All right, let's whip through some of these last categories of the Expressos right now. The best money shows streaming right now, Sam, what's your favorite? Give me your top two or three if you have them. So I've been going back and watching uh, Billions on (laughs) Showtime. And, you know, it's uh, it, it's a fun show. It's uh, There's a lot of action, a lot of drama. But um, as a finance nerd, I really appreciate when they actually spend a couple minutes per episode talking about why they are making certain trades, whether it's Bobby Axelrod and his analysts or whatever will make some obscure trade about, you know, how 
buying iron ore in Singapore or, or some, you know, developing country for some particular reason because some warlord is doing this. You know, they'll, they'll have these really complicated, intricate, uh, structured reasons why they think something is going to happen. I think that's really interesting, especially for anybody who's interested in finance. It's not necessarily just like statistics and flow of funds or whatever, but there are people who are making huge wagers in the financial markets based off of a very sophisticated understanding of how the world works and how people work and how economies work. And they talk about, they spend a lot of time talking about, you know, trades based off of these fundamentals. It's just incredibly fascinating. Yeah. For, for folks like you and me, that's just, you know, candy and we love it. And our traffic spikes every time Billions is on the air. Why? Because they're bringing up terms that people are like, what? What's a bear hug? You know, what's an option? So I, I actually told Brian Koppelman, you caused us to have to write the viewer's guide to billions because people are looking up these terms. He's like, we use it all the time. So I agree with you. Billions is great. Succession, I'm a huge fan of that. More of a family drama, but it's a good family media drama. Lots of good business in there. Uh, lots of good uh, investing terms to look up there. And you got to say inventing Anna, if you haven't seen it, folks, that's a business. That's a money story. That's a, you know, it's a fascinating uh, series, but it's also at its core about money and it's about greed. All right, let's get to the best money films. We're going to go all time here for the Expressos. The top five, your top five best Best money films of all time, and you could throw in an honorable mention or two if you want to. Okay, so off the top, I'm going to say Margin Call was really great. It's a great sort of window into to people, uh, professionals in the financial markets industry. And yeah, a lot of time is spent in these offices with fluorescent lights looking at spreadsheets. And then you put a number into a spreadsheet and someone gets really excited and someone gets really scared. And then you're suddenly in a boardroom meeting with people talking about how this stuff works. Really great, tense drama. It, it, you know, it's, it's like watching a play, um, but I think margin call is great for anybody who's trying to get a, a peek into how the industry works. Training places, you know, again, all time classic, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, you know, great comedy, great fun, but you know, kind of like what I was saying with billions, the story revolves around how these commodities brokers are, are going to inside trade frozen orange juice futures. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. They talk about the, the crop report and weather patterns and all this stuff. And I, I think for anybody interested in finance, it's like, yeah, finance and financial markets and economics is about these things that you're consuming every day. Another one that's fl uh, flown under the radar uh, that nobody ever talks about is uh, a movie from maybe like 20 years ago called Family Man. I don't know if you remember this one with Nicolas Cage, who is this accomplished, you know, very wealthy uh, Wall Street guy who made all these decisions to get to where he's at to have all this incredible wealth. And then one day he wakes up as, uh, you know, a husband uh, of his, uh, you know, high school sweetheart and has these kids and is living this very different kind of life. And then eventually, spoiler alert, you know, he realizes that there's more to life than just having tons of money. And I think it's really important for, for, for people who do think about stuff like investing and trading and economics and all of this stuff is that, you know, not everybody is solely motivated by money and profits and all that stuff. And I think it teaches us a little, a lot about how economics actually works. It, it explains to us why, you know, people might vote for presidents who, who might not have their economic interests in, in mind if they are, you know, sort of advancing, moving forward, sort of social concerns and whatever that might come out of financial cost. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Family Man. Um, and then, yeah, topping out the top five, I'm going to say, 
you know, again, these might be cliches, but, you know, Wall Street from, you know, the uh, original, like, the first. Original. And then, you know, I thought the sequel was great, too. It, not not as good as the original, but I, I love the sequel in that you still have the Michael Douglas character. But, you know, how do you continue to exist in the financial markets world? What was dirty and scummy and whatever back in the 80s, very different, you know, than, than how you define that sort of Wall Street Raider behavior and, and the the late 2000s um so yeah i, I love I, I i thought it was interesting how that character evolved between those two movies so that, that, that's my top five that's a good top five we got some crossover there i'm gonna go the big short a little michael lewis action there and moneyball which is a baseball movie but it's it's a little bit about money too it's not necessarily about wall street in the financial world but it is about the way money works and the way to evaluate players and the use of metrics you gotta love boiler room you know, if you really want to learn about how those slock shops worked back in the day, Wolf of Wall Street, a little crazy, a little zany, but at the, at the core of it, it's about money and it's about ripping people off. But you'll learn a ton watching that if you can make your way through the scenes there. I put Wall Street on my list and I also put trading places. A couple honorable mentions for me. I had margin call there. Now that you mention it, I do like it a lot better and I do love Stanley Tucci who doesn't. And It's a Wonderful Life. A lot of people don't realize this. That's a very important uh, film with lessons about money that you could learn. So good crossover there. Good list. We're going to make sure we post these for folks in the show notes here. All right. Let's zip through this in the last couple of minutes we have left. We're going to do this lightning round, overrated or underrated. Let's start with buy now, pay later, Sam. Overrated. I agree. That's layaway in my neighborhood. It's layaway. Web, yeah. yeah. Web three. At the moment, it's overrated, but we might just be early. I agree. It's going to be like uh, the internet. Who's going to use internet and email? We were saying to ourselves in the 80s. We can't live without it right now. Esports. Underrated. I think there's something really excited about just video gaming in general. Like, you know, you look at uh, demographic surveys and 45% of, of gamers are female. So it's, it's rare to see public spectacle or sport or whatever you want to call it where the gender uh, breakdown is, is that split. Now, I, I think in the professional esports world, it's actually very heavily male-dominated. But um, I, I, I think it's an in, interesting, exciting place, especially if we're going to start talking about metaverse and all this stuff in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, great call. And I don't disagree with you on that, not one bit. Fintech, Sam. I thought I was going to say overrated, but I'm going to say underrated. <laughs> uh, I think with the right kinds of fintech, it's extremely underrated. Um, you know, just the other day, I was at a, a sandwich shop here in, in Brooklyn, and they, you know, made you order from the table using a QR code, which is, you know, that's one kind of experience. But at the very end, you could pay for it by just uh, double tapping, you know, the lock button on your iPhone, and you're using Apple Pay, and it cuts out a lot of steps. So I, I think any kind of fintech where where you're cutting out steps when it comes to payment processing is is really exciting. I, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of u- using debit and credit cards. Well, I mean, big fan in the ease of use, but um, not having to you know take the credit card out and sign a receipt and enter security codes and stuff. Reducing frictions always very exciting. Yep. We, we always look for that when we look for financial modes. ESG, last one, Sam. ESG, well-intentioned, but overrated. Overrated. I think when ESG was first uh, coined, it, it might have been a good idea because, yeah, you, everyone loves 
uh, you know, environment, sustainability, you know, corporate governance, all this stuff. It's like, it, it's all, all the right things, but it's been completely sort of taken over by uh, people who are, you know, defining indexes and, you know, creating uh, rating systems. And as soon as you create uh, those sort of guidelines, every company is going to have their, their lawyers out there and, and their strategy people to figure out how to game things so that they can get onto the, these lists. And so you, you'll look at a, a, a list of uh, top holdings for an ESG fund and you'll be horrified by some of the companies that are, that are on there. But, you know, they, they game the system. So overrated. Yeah, it, greenwashing in full effect. We talk a lot about that on the Green Investor Podcast for folks that want to check that out. But I agree with you, overrated. But I do think it has promise. So good to have you on the Express. Sam Rowe, folks, check out the Substack, ticker TK apostrophe ER. Follow Sam, a great follow in financial media and a great friend in the business. Thanks so much for joining the Express. Thanks for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Jeff on our legal team here at Dot Dash Meredith. Jeff suggests specific performance clause, which is technically a legal term, but it applies to Elon Musk's not-so-surprising revelation that he wants to terminate his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. Musk said in an SEC filing on Friday via a letter from his attorney arguing that Twitter breached its contractual obligations, namely that he believes that Twitter is undercounting its number of bot users and also that it didn't follow the ordinary course of business by firing top executives, laying off employees, and implementing a hiring freeze as business slowed down. Twitter's board retaliated by threatening to sue Musk for breach of agreement. But Musk claims that he not only has the right to walk away from his agreement, but also hinted that he shouldn't have to pay the $1 billion termination fee because the company may have triggered a reverse material effect clause. Then Twitter said the company will seek to have a Delaware Chancery Court force Musk to complete the buyout under the original terms via a merger term called the Specific Performance Clause. In fact, Section 9.9 of the Musk Twitter merger agreement says the company shall be entitled to specific performance or other equitable remedy to enforce Musk's obligations, assuming various other conditions are satisfied, namely that Musk still has the debt financing in place to close the deal. We assume he does. He said he does. Still, Twitter could sue Musk for helping to crush Twitter's share price since he started this charade. Shares are down about 24% since April and trade well below the $54.20 per share offer that Musk originally made. If Twitter accepts less than the price it originally negotiated with Musk, it could expose the company to shareholder lawsuits. An out-of-court settlement is also possible, with Musk paying Twitter a large fee to be released from his obligation to buy the company. But somehow, I don't see Musk willing to do that. Anyway, thanks Jeff for that suggestion, specific performance clause. We're going to update that term on Investopedia, and you're getting a fresh pair of socks, my friend. We're going to let the late, great James Caan take us out this week. The iconic actor passed away last week at the age of 82. From Sonny Corleone in The Godfather Part 1 to Paul Sheldon in Misery, Caan was an unforgettable screen presence and motion picture personality. His role as Frank in Michael Mann's Thief was powerful and unforgettable, and a good lesson in the struggles of the independent contractor, so to speak. Here's Caan as Frank trying to get out of the crime life, albeit unsuccessfully. I can see my money is still in your pocket which is from the yield of my labor. What gratitude. You are making big profits from my work, my risk, my sweat, but that is okay because I elected it to make that deal, but now the deal is over. I want my end and I am out. 
over and out and rest in peace to James Kong. And thanks for riding with us this week, as always, and special thanks to Sam Rowe for climbing aboard. It was fun to have him along for the ride, and we're going to workshop that Espresso Awards. There's something to that. Throttle down, eyes forward this week. There's a lot coming at us, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.